This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. We just saw in the video words from John chapter 1 talking about Jesus and his role in creation. And it fits really well with this passage in Colossians chapter 1 and some other passages we're going to go to this morning. If you're our guest this morning for the first time maybe, um, first time in a while, we are in a series that we started last Sunday uh, called Incomparable. And looking at Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, who we celebrate his, his birth here in just a couple of weeks, but we made the point last Sunday that in this world and in this culture in which we live, at least here in these United States, uh, we have uh, kind of put Jesus on the shelf with the message last Sunday was the left out Jesus. And we no longer truly have a grasp culture-wise of who Jesus is. So that's why this series, we're going to be learning who he is and so that when we do get to uh, Christmas Day, we can celebrate him even hopefully greater and better than we ever have uh, before. Um, we, there, there was a, um, a couple things in the news this week uh, that, gra- that caught my attention, and I wanted to uh, point them out to you um, and, and that illustrate where we were last Sunday about the, our culture losing sight of who Jesus is. One was a story from a, from a principal in a school in Nebraska who has banned from his school candy canes, right? Can't bring candy canes to school in that school in Nebraska because the principal says they're shaped in the shape of the letter J, which stands for Jesus, and we won't have any Jesus in our celebration at school this year. Now, we shake our heads at that and go, Really? Uh, A second story, however, was even, uh, I think, stronger than that about what's happening uh, in our culture. And this was a story, this comes from the Star Tribune, I think it's a Minnesota newspaper. It says a psychology professor at Minnesota State University, Mankato, is taking heat for tweeting that God is guilty of a hashtag MeToo violation for the Virgin Mary's pregnancy. His name's Eric Sprankle. He specializes in sexuality studies. He counsels victims of sexual abuse. And he tweeted earlier this week, the virgin birth is a story about an all-knowing, all-powerful deity impregnating a human teen. There is no definition of consent that would include that scenario. Happy holidays. Uh, He published a second tweet, and he said, the biblical God regularly punished disobedience. The power difference, God being deity and Mary being mortal, and the potential for violence for saying no negates her yes. And if you read the story in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, Mary indeed did say yes. You're God, I'm your servant. Whatever you want, I'll do. To put someone in this position is an unethical abuse of power at best, listen, and grossly predatory at worst. This guy's uh, bio, by the way, if I can find, uh, find that. The, the university, by the way, came out and said, you know, what do we do now with this? They said, well, he's practicing his First Amendment right of freedom of speech and religion, which 
true, he is. But this fellow's teaching young college students, and he's coming out with something like that, and frankly, you know, whether you uh, are, agree with it or totally agree, totally doesn't make any difference, the whole Me Too thing has got everybody's attention. When somebody comes out and says God is guilty of sexual abuse somehow, a lot of young people are going to fall into that and believe that. Um, he, uh, his, uh, his Twitter bio includes the fact that his bio includes the words Ave Satanus, which is Latin for Hail Satan. Um, obviously, this fellow doesn't believe um, and, and what he's proposing there and what he's tweeted about there is just an indication, as sick as it might be, of where our culture has gone and what we're becoming here because we've left Jesus out. We don't understand who he is. So today, this morning, let me read these verses, verses 15 to 17, and then we'll move on and find out more about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. This morning we're saying in in this message that his story, the story of Jesus, is history. Because he started it all. And it's been at the center of of history, human history, the history of this earth ever since. And the Bible makes no bones about it, if you're taking notes. The first point is that Jesus is the one and only, the Lord of the universe. He was there. He was here. Before anything ever got started, and the Bible tells us he'll be around as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords forever. So when we say history is his story, we mean it. It's all about Jesus. Now, last Sunday, we talked about Christ being left out of his own birthday party by a culture that is either, as this professor, is either ignorant of who he is, which I believe that's the case there. He doesn't know. Or who finds Jesus offensive, and it could be both. By the way, what do you do with people that you may know, that you may work with, that may be your friends, neighbors? What do you do with people who find Jesus offensive? Now, you're here in church this morning, and probably you're here because you don't find him offensive. You find him uh, altogether lovely. You are so glad that he came to this earth to die and and, uh, give his life so that you could have life and to be your savior. You don't find anything offensive about Jesus, but lots of people obviously do, so much so that they don't allow candy canes in school. So why, what do you do with people that find him offensive? Do you water him down? Do you water down his gospel so that it's more palatable to people? Do you say, well, it's, let's not be super strong, you know, this whole thing and that whole thing, and do you try to play it down, what the Bible says? I hope not. The Apostle Paul, I can't think of anybody who has ever lived who lived, understood the message of Christ being offensive. I can't think of anybody who grasped that people were offended by the gospel any more than the Apostle Paul. Somebody, you know his story probably, that as he became a Christian after 
after going after Christians and persecuting them and trying to put them in prison so they could be executed. And then he became a Christian and his life radically changed. And he began to go throughout the world and evangelize and preach, start churches. And the, and the whole time that he did that, you read the book of Acts, somebody was always chasing him. Someone was always trying to put him in jail or, or stone him. They were throwing stones at him or execute him, beat him simply because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he preached. Now, Paul wasn't trying to be offensive, but he said, here's the deal. Jesus is offensive to people in this world. His own people, the Jews, felt betrayed by Paul. And even though Jesus was a Jew, they rejected him. They were offended by him. So, so he address the issue of Christ being offensive. Listen to some things that he said. He said in Galatians 5:11, if I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. If I want to stop offending people with the message, I just stop preaching it and that, that deals with the offense. Of course, Paul knew he couldn't do that. Paul knew that the grace of the gospel the heart of the gospel is that salvation is a gift of God. It can't be something that you and I earn. He knew that offends people. Why does that offend people, That this grace? Uh, it offends people because in our heart of hearts as humans, as lost people, we want to believe that I can save myself. I can be good enough that God will take notice of me. I can do enough righteous things that God's taking them down and writing them down and keeping count of them. And one day when I stand before him, he'll look at all the good things I did in my life and say, you know what, Rick, you are a pretty good guy. I'm gonna let you into heaven because of how good you were. And the gospel says, not true. The gospel says there is nothing I'm able to do to earn God's favor. The gospel says it's by grace through faith that I can be saved and it's not about my works. So the gospel is offensive to those who think, I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps, thank you. I don't need any help. I'm worthy enough to God that he would want me into his heaven, come into his heaven. And the Bible says, no, I, the old hymn that we used to sing, remember, at the cross, at the cross, and those words in that song that say that he died for such a worm as I. The theology of the worm. Look at the person next to you and say, you're a worm, and so am I, all right? <laughs> We don't like, what do you mean I'm a worm? I mean, that's like, the worm is like the lowest of the low. That's offensive. Actually, Jesus knew, it wasn't any surprise to Jesus, he knew that he was offensive, and he said so during his own ministry in Matthew 11. He said, if anyone is not offended because of me, he's blessed. He knew that most people would be, and they were. Mark 6, 3, he's in his hometown, he's doing miracles, he's teaching, great things are happening, and in Mark 6, 3, it says this, so they, the people who lived in his hometown, his neighbors and his friends, the, the guys and gals he had gone to school with, graduated with, and the whole, everybody that had known him, the first 30 years of his life were offended by him. We saw a video last Sunday that asked people, who they thought Jesus is. Who do you think Jesus is? A man on the street video. But in Jesus' hometown, they were asking this question. Who does he think he is? Coming into town and saying these things. And he, We know him. He's, he's just a carpenter. Who does he think he is? Well, here in the, the Colossian church that Paul writes to, in the verses we, uh, we read just a few moments ago, there was going on in that church a false doctrine of Christ. 
they were claiming Christ, but they said, but Jesus, here's who Jesus is. And it was a doctrine called Gnosticism. Comes from the word knowledge in the Greek. Gnosticism. And one of the tenets of Gnosticism was that denied that Jesus lived in a physical body as a man so that he could die for our sins because the rationale was, how could God become a man and how can God die? That can't happen. So he really wasn't a physical human being. He was more of a phantom type. You know, they saw him, he looked real. He talked to them, they could hear him, but he really wasn't human. He was something else. And it appealed, frankly, to to the intellectuals in in the church and in the town, which all of us would say, well, that that would include me. It appealed to all the intellectuals, you know, the deeper thinkers. Oh, well, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. But what it did was denied who Jesus is. And I believe that the worst thing that can happen in a society, for a society, is for its churches to deny Christ. And Paul writes this letter and he writes these things to them because this doctrine is creeping into their church and they're starting to buy into it because it sounds so smart. Now let me say, there probably was no greater intellectual Christian who ever lived than the Apostle Paul. The guy was brilliant. He was a genius. And he wants to dispel this and say that's not true. And let me explain to you who Jesus is. So this passage of Colossians that begins there in verse 15 is one of the greatest declarations of Christ's deity that you'll ever find in Scripture. We as Christians have to learn to understand these things and to believe in them and stand firm on who Jesus is because there are, you know, there are cults today who deny Christ, who he is, how he came. There are cults that believe he was a created being. There are cults today, the Mormons, for example, believe that Jesus was created, and so was, as they believe, his brother, a guy named Lucifer. They were created by God. We can't allow ourselves to be, be deceived by those things. And modern popular philosophy wants to acknowledge that Jesus lived. Okay, we'll, we'll accept the fact that he was a historical figure, but they want to say that he was just a man. So, Who is Jesus really? Paul says, first of all, he says, he is the image of the invisible God, meaning Jesus allowed us to see what God is like. Do you remember the story in the New Testament? Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he asked for a coin. Anybody got a coin, he said? And somebody reached in their pocket and pulled out a coin. And on that coin, on my coin, I have a quarter, and on the quarter is is the image of George Washington. I know that's George Washington because I've seen this before, his picture. And they pulled out a coin, and Jesus held up the coin and said, whose image is on this coin? And somebody answered back, Caesar. It's Caesar's image picture on the coin. Remember that? The word that he used there for image is the same word that Paul uses here for image in Colossians, the same Greek word. Whose image is this? And what Jesus was saying to them was, you give to Caesar, as he holds up the coin, Caesar's picture's on the coin, you give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, meaning you pay taxes. But you give to God the things that are God. He's holding up the image of Caesar, and right next to the image of Caesar, they're looking at the image of God in Jesus Christ. Why was that important? And and let me give this as an illustration 
I don't think it's the best illustration, but maybe it will help. Um, some of our folks in the room, uh, we had, we had uh, some folks, especially in the, in the last gathering, a couple folks that, that were in their 80s, and they said, oh yeah, I, I remember this well. But some of us will remember uh, that there was a series of movies that came out a long time ago, back in the black and white movies days, and maybe you've ever watched these movies on, on Turner Classic Movies or something called The Invisible Man. Anybody ever seen The Invisible Man movies? And it's about a guy who was invisible, all right? And, uh, and, and he would go places, and in order for him to be seen, because he was invisible, he'd put on a hat, and he would put on clothes, and uh, you, you couldn't see his face, but you could see the hat, and you could see the coat, and you could see the pants, and so you knew there was somebody there because he adorned himself with the clothes so that he could be seen. Otherwise, he was totally invisible. So here, here's how I'll, I'll use that illustration. When the infant Jesus was born to Mary, the Son of God wrapped himself in human flesh, put on human flesh, became man so that you and I could have a Savior who would live and die and rise again. He had to do that. He had to become human. The angel told Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. How, do we, how did they know God was with them? Because they could see him. He was the image of the invisible God. The writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says it this way. It's very similar to what Paul writes in Colossians. In these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature and he sustains all things by his powerful word. Jesus in John 14, 9 was you know, talking with the Jewish leaders there who couldn't grasp this, that he was God. And he said, look, if you've seen me, you've seen who? The Father. He would later say, the Father and I are one. We are one in the same. Image then means, is Jesus the Father? No. He's the Son, three people in the three persons in the Trinity, not people, but God, Father, Spirit. Image means he is the physical manifestation of God so that we could see him. Manifestation means something that could be seen. And Jesus had, or, or the Apostle John wrote this testimony in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Look at what John said. He was there with Jesus for the three years of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' best friend, we might say on this earth. And he said, he said, what was from the beginning? And he's talking about Christ. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed. Revealed means uncovered. Wrapped in human flesh. So we could see it. And we have seen it. And we, apostles, we testify and declare it to you declare to you that uh, the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. So the word image also means that he came to earth as God's representative, represented God. The Bible teaches, uh, the, here's a word for you, the omnipresence of God. 
That's something that's taught in the Bible. You won't find that word in the Bible, but it's taught. Omnipresent simply means God is where? Everywhere. Omni meaning every, all presence. He's everywhere. So God, is God in this room? Absolutely. God is everywhere. But please don't confuse that with a pagan belief of God that's called pantheism. Pantheism is the belief that everything is God, right? Everything is not God. This table is not God. The air I breathe is not God. The ocean out there is not God. The sun that comes up in the morning and sets in the evening is not God. But God is everywhere. We, we again, in the video last Sunday, this one guy said, you know, who is Jesus? And his answer was this. And it sounds so nice. Well, Jesus is everything. He's everything around us. He is spiritual, earth, water, fire. Jesus is everything. And that sounds really nice, doesn't it? But it's so false. Jesus is not everything. Jesus is the visible manifestation representative of God. And what we understand as Christians is that God is personal. What do you mean? Well, he's a being. He loves. He communicates. So when I look at the ocean, right now I'm sure it's crazy wild with that wind. When I look at the ocean, I can look at that ocean and I can't say there is God because that's not God. But what I can say is I know who created that. When I look at the sun come up in the morning over there or watch it set down in the evening over there, I don't say there goes God in the sky. That's not God. But I can say I know who put that sun up there. I know who causes it to come up in the morning and set in the evening. It's the one who creates it. The omnipresent God is everywhere. And that means in order to do that, he must be spirit. Jesus can't be everywhere, can he? Why? Because he has a physical body. So does he have a physical body now? Yeah. If you go to Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about when he, when he ascended to heaven. It says he got to the throne of God and it says he sat down. He's described him doing physical things. But the Holy Spirit who now represents Jesus and represents the Father on this earth, he can be everywhere because he is spirit. A physical body can't be in two places at one time. But we can't see spirit. So Jesus said in John 4, 24, that God is spirit, meaning he's invisible. Our eyes can't see the invisible, can they? No. So one of the three persons of the Trinity, God the Son, became the representative, became the image of God for the whole trinity, for God the Father, Son, and Spirit, and showed us Jesus did who God is. Paul wrote this about God. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a great worship statement that is. In fact, there's an old hymn that takes those words. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, but then Jesus came. We might say that it's to our advantage, disadvantage, I should say, that we can't see him. You know, it would be a whole lot easier for people to believe if we could see Jesus. And if God was somehow visible to us on earth today, a whole lot of people would believe him, wouldn't they? Well, I mean, he was visible for a while, and he proclaimed himself as the Son of God, as he preached and as he taught for three plus years. And what did they do to him? 
they put him to death. So to say, well, if he, we, people could just see Jesus, they would believe. And remember what Jesus said to Thomas? And Thomas says, I don't think that's really you. And Jesus said, go ahead, Thomas, touch the wounds of my hands in my side. And, uh, and Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And he looks at him and he said, you know, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. Well, how can we believe in him if we can't ever see him? Well, we have these eyewitnesses called the, the apostles and these who knew him and wrote these things down so that we could understand who he is. He's the visible image of the invisible God. I hope you get that. I hope you stand firm on that. Then Paul says he's the firstborn over all creation. What does that mean? It means that Jesus has ultimate authority over the universe, that it's all his firstborn. And firstborn, this trips people up. Firstborn does not mean he was the first ever born. It means, you know, it can't mean that because he never had a, eternally he didn't have a birth because he's eternal. Some, someone eternal can't have a birth because a birth means a beginning and eternal means no beginning and no end. So firstborn, it kind of be, what, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean when he was born in the Bethlehem. Can't mean that because there are a whole lot of people for thousands of years who were born before Jesus. Firstborn means something different. That's not the meaning here. Firstborn, we think of firstborn as being the oldest in the family. Doesn't mean that. Paul, who wrote these words, was a Jewish scholar. And in his Jewish mind, different than probably everybody in this room, I would, I'm going to assume that most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. In his Jewish mind, thinking in a Jewish way, Paul understood the role of the firstborn as meaning the one who gets the inheritance. It wasn't, he wasn't talking about being born. He was talking about legally receiving the inheritance. The inheritor received all of his father's possessions, everything, every single one of them, and that was their culture. And if you were, happened to be the second born, or you happened be, to be the baby of a large family, you got land, you got inheritance only if the firstborn in your family was generous and said, oh, I want you to have some of dad's things too, but didn't have to. That's why Jacob, you know the story of Jacob and Esau? That's why Jacob deceived his father Isaac so that he could get the what? The birthright, the inheritance of being firstborn, he stole it from his older twin brother Esau. And so for our understanding, and we're not Jews, for our understanding, Jesus is given the title of firstborn because the Father has placed the inheritance, the ownership of the universe in his possession. It belongs to him. As Christians looking to the Bible to give us a worldview that honors God, we've got to come to the conclusion then that when all is said and done, Jesus Christ is the sovereign. He's the ultimate authority. He is the beginning and the end. As he said in Revelation chapter one, and John wrote these words down, he said, I am the alpha and I am the omega. What is that? Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter. For us in English, it would be I am the A to the Z and everything in between. So that's why we say history is indeed his story. Then Paul goes on and he says, for everything was created by him and for him. He is the creator and he's the sustainer of the universe. What we can see and what we can't see. I can't see everything in the universe. Can you? I can't see air. But I know it's there. 
I'm thankful it's there, but I can't see it. The things that we can't see, which include the physical and the spiritual. In here he talks about the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, spiritual things. So when we get back to Genesis 1, you're familiar with that, I bet, and we read that God said, let there be light, let there be land, let there be animals, let there be ocean and water and so forth that God said in the, in the six days of creation. When it says God said, it's really saying that these words were Paul, Paul's telling you spoken by the Son of God, Jesus. He was the architect. I remember as a, a young teenager, uh, there was a song that came out that seemed to be popular in, in, some, in some churches um, uh, back in those days. Called, it was called Master Designer was the name of the song. There was a guy in my church who sang and, and actually recorded an album, and that song was on that album. We had the album. We played it at home. And, um, and, and his, his soon-to-be father-in-law was our pastor, and I heard him say, I don't like that song. And the reason he didn't like that song was because one line in the song says, Master, it's talking about God. Master designer, whoever you are. And the Bible doesn't tell us that we have to wonder whoever he is. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the creator and all creation was made by him and for him. So there isn't any, you know, master architect. It was Jesus Christ who did all that. What might that mean then that we were all created for him? I think it's a couple things that we need to grasp with that. First of all, it must mean that be that we were created for him must mean that our purpose for being, your purpose, why, you know, that's the big question of mankind. Why am I here? First and foremost, you and I are here to bring him glory. You and I are here to worship him in and through our lives. We're created to worship him. There's a scene in Revelation chapter 14. John tells us, he looks and he says, and there's this angel that cries out, Loudly to the inhabitants of the earth. How loud must that be for all the inhabitants of the earth to hear it? He cries out to the inhabitants of the earth, Worship the maker of heaven and earth. The psalmist would write, Let us come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. So on that night, that we think about as we sing these songs. On that night in Bethlehem, it was fitting. You read Luke chapter two, the Christmas story. It was fitting for the angels, who I believe must have totally been blown away, must have totally been in awe, that the Son of God that they have known forever, eternally, they've known him in heaven forever as the Son of God, and suddenly the Son of God the creator becomes a baby born to a virgin in a little town that hardly anybody's ever heard of in a stable. And it blew them away and they went to the shepherds who were out and they said, we got to tell somebody. And so they light up the sky with their presence and they tell the angels what, or the shepherds, what has happened. They deliver the good news to them. And so the shepherds go back down to Bethlehem. You know the story, they go and they find him. And then they go back up to, their, to, their, to watch their sheep. They return to where they've been and they say, we gotta tell somebody. And so they start telling the sheep, hey, you never know, you won't believe what's just happened. They rehearse it, they, it says that they glorified and praised God. 
That's why we teach here at Nags Head Church that one of our one of the five biblical purposes that we find for ourselves as a church and as, as individuals, as his creation, is to worship. And that worship is to be the center of all we do. See, worship, worship is not confined to an hour and 10, 15 minutes on Sunday morning. Your, your ministry, those of you who have served in ministry this morning, you're handing out outlines, you were making coffee, you last gathering, you were with the children teaching them, and you've been up here leading worship, and with, with, the, with the band, you served as an usher, you're out in the parking lot today. That was worship and sacrifice. <laughs> worship, you, you were worshiping God in your ministry. Your work, whatever you do for a living, you have a job, your work, you need to begin to see my work as an act of worshiping God, whatever it is that you do. Worship, I think you should see, and I'm talking to myself here as much as anybody else, I think you should see worship as, you know, you're worshiping when you're washing the dishes, you know. Worship should permeate everything that we do. And when we see ourselves worshiping throughout the day, at work, at home, whatever it is that we're doing, we see our lives as worshiping. It changes how we do our work. It changes how we relate to one another because we find ourselves worshiping God. And then we're told, Paul says, Jesus holds the universe together. Here's what that means. Let's get just right here where we are right now. Do you know why you're able to sit in that chair and not be strapped down and bolted down to the floor? And somebody would say, because of gravity. Yeah, who created that? Who made that possible? Jesus did. Jesus did. He holds the world together. I, I always avoided, in high school, you know, and some people, they, they loved science in school, and so they took all the biology classes and, the, and, you know, all the different kinds of science, whatever they could take. I was one of those that, man, get me in and out of that class as quickly as we can because I just don't think that way. But I remember them talking about, and, and, and even in college, I had to take one science class in college, and so I took, I took dummy science, I guess. I don't know what the name of the class was. I took dummy math. I took dummy science. And, uh, and, and I remember them talking about, in that class, talking about atoms. And I can't remember what I, but I remember them giving me this visual in my mind of this atom and things spinning around in every atom, you know. Here's what that verse says. He sustains all that. He's the one that makes all that happen. He's the one that holds it together. If it was not for Jesus, we'd be all over the place. He holds us all together. It's all held together by him. Who put the earth at just the right place so that we could survive on this planet and not burn from the heat of the sun or freeze to death because we're just a little bit too far from it? Christ. And he sustains the universe from the center of everything. It's all held together by him. I remember as a child learning that song in Sunday school. Maybe you learned it too when you were little. He's got the whole world where? In his hands. In his hands. He sustains it. Jesus does. It's true. The psalmist wrote, The earth and everything in it, the world and all its inhabitants belong to the Lord. Jesus in Matthew 28 said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And, and here's what I thought about it as we were singing 
that song, So Will I, a little bit ago, and I thought, you know, this is all true about the creation, that Jesus is Lord of the universe and Lord of creation. But how is it that it seems like most of creation is in rebellion against him? I think what we're witnessing outside right now, that storm, is rebellion against God. Why do you say that? Because he created it to be like the Garden of Eden. How is it that creation, not just the weather and not just the things that happen on the planet, but the things that you and I do in our lives, how is it that we are in rebellion to the one who created it all? And the answer is, it all has to do with sin. But here's, here's the great thing. One of these days, he's coming back. And he's going to recreate this world, and it's all going to be perfect, the Bible tells us. Philippians, Paul writes to the Philippian church, and he makes this promise. He said, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Rebellious and not rebellious. Every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's what that says. The day of judgment that's coming, and at that day, every mullah, every shaman, Every pagan, every atheist will proclaim Jesus as Lord as they stand before him, actually as they kneel before him. It's no mystery, is it, that the world would rather see Jesus as a baby in a manger. He can do no harm. What what can a baby do? The world would rather see him as a baby in a manger than the almighty creator, the Lord of all, King of kings, who will one day judge heaven and earth. And he was a baby. Let's not deny that. We celebrate that at Christmas time. That's a great story. Virgin Mary had a baby boy, and that's an awesome story. But he was only a baby for, um, I don't know, a few months. He was a baby no longer than you and I were babies. And he began to grow, and he became a man, and he lived a short lifetime of 33 years, but he accomplished so much. But Jesus is the very image of God, and because he is the ultimate authority of the universe, let me, let me close our time this morning with this question, and it begs this question for every single one of us. If Jesus is on the throne, if he's the one who created it, if he is the ultimate authority of the universe, Let's bring it down personally. Is he the ultimate authority of me, of my life? Do I live my life based on the word of God or or my own desires that may not be God's will? Are the standards by which I live and that guide my thoughts, are they from scripture or are they from this world? And what or whose values do I hold highest? I believe this world is getting darker and darker. Not in the light. The sun's as bright as ever, but I'm talking about spiritually. I think the world's getting darker and darker, and as dark as things in this world may become, we, we seem to be rapidly moving away from the light in this country that anybody, you know, 50 years ago, what that professor said, 50 years ago, they would have taken him and said, dude, you're not teaching here anymore. You know, what kind of nonsense is that? We're, we're, we're growing darker and darker in this culture and in this time, and, and 
we are rapidly moving away from the light. And so it's good to know that ultimately Jesus Christ is on the throne and in his time, he will make everything one day. And I, I pray it sooner than later. It's why Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because he knew at that time it wasn't being done. That we may come under his perfect reign. So while we celebrate his birth at Christmas time, and I hope you do, I hope it becomes the center of your Christmas celebration. We celebrate his birth as an innocent baby in the most humble of beginnings. We need to be so aware that he existed. That wasn't his beginning, that he existed far before Bethlehem as the Almighty God. And the fact that God came up with this plan for the Son of God, the Eternal One, to take on the form of man, to look just like us, that ought to make our understanding of Christ so different from the rest of the world so much more majestic, so much more powerful. Would you bow with me in prayer? So let me ask you this question before we conclude while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. Is he the ultimate authority of your life? Maybe I should back up a step and ask this question. Do you know Jesus? Or is he to you still just a story in a book? The amazing thing is that this creator, this God, creator of all things, the amazing thing is he wants to be your Lord and your Savior. And he's not just somebody out there somewhere. He came to earth to give you and to give me a new life and to fix the sin that breaks and condemns us. And so if you're here today and you say, you know, I don't know him. I know about him, but I really don't know him. I can't say that he, I've allowed him to be the ultimate authority in my life, but I would like to. Our pastors, after we sing this song, will be standing here at the end of this, the song with which we'll close to talk with you and point you to Christ. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God. Love others, reach the world.